This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, Melbourne. Welcome to another episode of Einstein at Go-Go. Hope you're not too wet out there. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, fella. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How you going? Well, uh, didn't even have to back paddle in. It was great. Uh, <laughs> live, live, live in the middle of a hill. So. Live in the dream. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty good. Dr. Jen's in the house. How are you? Morning, Dr. Shane. Also reasonably dry. We live at the top of a hill, so... Oh, yes. It was a good, good choice. It was fairly wet driving in there uh, last night, but we drove mm. up our driveway and it was it was okay. Mm. I just want to send a big shout out there to the team from the Bureau of Meteorology because mm. they've done a spectacular job of all the predictions over the weekend and they've copped a little bit of shit. Yeah. And yeah. for those who have been giving them shit, piss off. Yeah, um, Because well, it's really hard and... And if it had gone the other way and it had been worse than expected, everyone would be bitching and moaning about that. And these totally. guys have done it. But you know, it, good it, job. It, it tracked their prediction. The yeah. fact that the worst storm didn't go over Melbourne, I, I think that's just a plus, right? Yeah. The worst <laughs> storm was there. <laughs> just it, a it, little bit to the east. Yeah. You know, and so. also, when you look at the rainfall predictions, they oh. give you a range. You know, they're saying it was somewhere in there. When people yeah. are always quoting the highest estimate, they never said it would definitely be that. They yeah. said it would be in this range, and Do it know, was. I think it's people who are just looking for disaster shit. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're, oh, I didn't happen. Oh, re- really? People's houses didn't get flooded yeah. and people didn't die? Geez, sorry, it pissed you off. And how about all the farmers? <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. how many hours and hours did they spend trying to pick as much as they could before mm. the storms came through? Anyway, yeah, bra- bravo. Good, good, good science giving out uh, the best data that they can possibly give out, I think, which is fantastic. Anyway, we're going to get into some news. We've got three guests today, folks, some really interesting topics, but we'll start you off for uh, this wet Sunday with the week's news. Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? Uh, Dr. Shane, scallops, not just good with garlic and butter. Um, and, and for all the Aussie listeners, he's talking scallops. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't been able to do that in a couple of years. This is community of- radio. I can say this, right? No. Um, so scallops. Uh, Woohoo! We did it! Yeah, I'm yeah, learning. Uh, he's learning. So uh, scallops can see. Now... First of all, I went, was reading that going, scallops can see. Oh, well, I guess I, I kind of knew they could sense things, but I didn't realize they had eyes. And I kind of went, okay, so scallops have eyes. That's a thing. Hmm. Yeah, just catching up with what marine biologists and zoologists already know. But how scallops' eyes work is pretty wild. Um, so first of all, around kind of around the, the ridge, they have about 200 of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which was kind of wild too, but their eye is actually quite unique in that their eye does not use a lens the way most mammalian and a lot of fish and even invertebrates use. Their eye to focus light uses a bunch of little plate reflective platelets that are basically mirrors, kind of the same way telescopes use arrays of mirrors to focus light. Mm. Uh, and, and and I found this wild. I'm like, well, one, how do they have all these little tiny mirrors? And, how did we not know about this before? And the answer is we did, but nobody was able ever to look at them in situ properly. So researchers from the Wiseman Institute in Israel were able to actually image using cryo-EM all of these little, so this is an electron microscope, very cold, so it holds everything in place and nothing dries out. Uh, and, and they were actually able to look at these arrays of hundreds of little mirrors. We're talking they're maybe 75, 75 nanometers thick, uh, and they actually are all concave and aim the light, reflected light, onto their retina. And why they have 200 of them, this is pretty crazy. A scallop can see about 250 degrees. Mm, all the way around. All the way around. And mm. its retina is really complex. It actually has two retinas, one for forward vision, one for side. 
and it, it and how they do this and, and just the last thing about it it has mirrors now normally we think of a mirror as am i saying that right mirror mirror um <laughs> i've we, made we think paranoid of a, close yeah. enough <laughs> you're rabbit. no i i can still say suburbs properly so um but mirrors you know you think well how did it make a mirror it didn't take a piece of metal and polish it it actually uses an organic crystal guarine guanine uh and, and it actually forces the crystallization so the most reflective phase is actually pointing towards the light and a mirror biologically is made by having this crystal which is a has, has a high reflective index and having cytoplasm before behind it which is a low reflective index and that's kind of the qualification the mm. requirement for a mirror so it actually makes these mirrors in the eye it grows them uh and, and then it, it's very similar to how telescopes work now when we design telescopes with little mirrors Physicists and astronomers came up on that, came up with that idea, probably without looking at the scallop. But it, it's rather interesting that, that, that these two things are converging. Yeah. yeah. Well, in fact, the, the the way in which we focus X-rays in science is done by the same methodology that a lobster's eye works, which is these little square channels, um, and that you know you the the light, or in that case, the X-rays go go down these little channels. I mean, it seems as though some of this amazing stuff. Is, um, is in the ocean. Really cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh, hmm. And they also see kind of, they don't really see red, they see more blue-green. Yeah. 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 Blue-green. Pretty cool. Yeah. Dr. Jenny, what do you got for us? Well, I thought we'd talk about that age-old uh, question of division of labour between men and women, you know, who's doing all the work. Anyone want to, you know, come in with any comments before I actually <laughs> tell you I was just going to say, as long as it's not me, I don't care <laughs> what gender it is. So, I mean, I'm... <clears throat> My wife and I have been married about 20-ish years, and mm. I think that's the number of times she's cleaned a bathroom. So clearly, we're doing <laughs> something right. Oh, <laughs> she's sitting out in the green room. I wonder she's if there's going to be a she's response. She's going nuts out there. She, oh, you're getting the stink eye big time. <laughs> but, but, no, no, but I hate to shop. So she does the yeah, grocery so shopping. I do the cleaning. Yeah, I love to cook. Labor. I love to cook. She washes the pots and pans. Yeah, you can't see her. I can see her. You're, you're in deep <laughs> shit when you... <laughs> So the question is, if we try and go, you know, how far can we go back and try and get some idea of how it used to be in ancient societies? It's actually pretty hard. We have this basic idea of, you know, men hunting, women gathering, lots of research over that over the years. But there's been some interesting study looking at, if you look at the bones of people, you can infer quite a lot about their muscles. So based on, the, you know, the bones have clear indications of the muscles that would have been mm. attached to them mm. and the shapes of those muscles. And so one of the arguments has always been, if you look at the shape of men, men's shin bones over you know many long periods you can show a distinct change when men stopped running so much and became more sedentary when farming began about 10,000 years ago but over the same time you don't see a change in women's shin bones so the argument was always that maybe females were always more sedentary because they weren't out there hunting but a new study has just come out this week that looked at the arm bones of women and, yeah. in fact, showed that... So we're talking about from about 7,500 years ago through to about 1,000 years ago. So these are women who would have... Um, or who are characterised as being in the Neolithic ages, the Bronze Ages, the Iron Ages and the Medieval Ages in Europe. And they showed that, yeah, you're right, not much changes in terms of the shin bones of these women. So it's the, we can't suggest this big change from running to not running as much as farming mm -hmm. became the mm -hmm predominant lifestyle but for the first time someone bothered to look at the arms of these women and it turns out that these ancient 
women, these prehistoric women, had incredibly strong biceps, incredibly strong arms. So they compared the bones, the upper arm bones of these women to modern women who were endurance runners, rowers, you know, elite rowers, mm. elite runners, elite soccer players compared to women now who don't do any exercise or not you know, any organised exercise, much, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it turns out that even comparing them to elite rowers today who we know are massively built in the upper body, yeah. these ancient women were at least 10%, potentially even more stronger in their arms than these elite rowers are today. Is that right? Wow. So it suggests that these women were doing huge amounts of physical labour. Mm. It was just that it was upper body physical mm. labour. So they're suggesting women were responsible for digging, for hoeing, for grinding grain, and particularly you see it in the right arm, suggesting that they, many were right arm dominant, that their right arms were much stronger than the left. But you think of the strongest women around today and these prehistoric women were way stronger. It's kind of cool. I mean, in, in those days, though, it was just simply survival. These were yeah. the things you did to survive. So it wasn't, Absolutely. It wasn't anything specific about um, their, you know, their sort of activities or whether no, it's beyond just, just surviving you know there's yeah. a rock you've got to move it exactly you know, wait for the bulldozer you know you've just got to do it that's sure. there's no choice so the best estimate is that it's the equivalent of maybe about five to six hours a day every day of really hard physical mm. training mm. upper body training yeah. to look to look like those women would have looked like yeah even bigger than the, the butterfly swimmers because they tend to be the hugest yeah, well, like they didn't have swimmers in their big. study. They, there was yeah. a whole lot of students from the University of Cambridge and they specifically chose all of these elite athletes plus women who weren't elite athletes yeah. to compare. Um, and rowers out of the runners and the, mm. the soccer players and the rowers, they yeah. came out top. But, yeah, it would be interesting to yeah. see the swimmers, wouldn't it? I suppose the difference, too, is it's lifelong. Yes. So it's not, it's not you know, I got to 18 and I decided to become an Olympic athlete. It's yeah, like at absolutely. age six, yeah. if you could carry it, you could mm. do it and you did it to survive. And so it was that lifelong build-up of, of strength. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a fascinating thing, that these mm. bones tell us a lot about the muscles that are no longer there. If you know how yeah. to read the bones, they're telling you heaps yeah, about yeah. Yeah. stuff. Fascinating. What happened at 1,000 years ago? You said the, the, the range when they saw, started to see a change. They were just the most recent fossils oh, okay. that they yeah. looked at. I don't know exactly why they stopped then. Yeah, yeah we, got la- we got lazy a thousand years ago. <laughs> Stop doing stuff. Speak so, for yourself, Shane. Well, you know, they, that's probably when the wheel started, you know, being used <laughs> yeah. en masse. I don't know. Um, now, I wanted to, to just talk about something because often we, we hear about some of these new areas of research and people say, oh, how does that affect me, you know? And beyond the curiosity element, some, some areas of research get a bit of stick. And one that I've heard that for recently is gravitational wave detection, because this has been an enormous investment of money to detect gravitational waves. So I want to tell you a little story about something, an offshoot from that, that mm-hmm. I think is pretty cool and, and pretty quick, actually, just a couple of years after the technology has yeah. sort of been developed. Anyway, um, one of the things that happens when there is a fairly major earthquake is that there is also a bit of a fluctuation in the field of gravity um, nearby. And... It's interesting because you think, well, could you detect that? And the, it's not a huge fluctuation, but with the largest earthquakes, like the really big ones, like the one from Fukushima in 2011 in Japan, um, you actually can. And believe it or not, the detection of this change in gravity is done in the exact same way or with the same sort of equipment as what's being used to detect gravitational waves. Cool. And I think, well, okay, so what? You can detect a change in gravity. What does that mean? Does it mean you could sort of detect learn earlier on that you know an earthquake is going so but, yeah, maybe 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 yeah, there's a whole lot of maybes in there i presume the change happens at the moment the earthquake's happening well yeah advance. yeah and here's the cool thing right 
With um, seismographs, you know, that detect seismic waves, well, you've got to remember seismic waves actually travel pretty slowly. So they travel at somewhere between sort of 3 and 10 kilometres per hour. Um, sorry, per second, not that slowly, <laughs> per second. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh, geez, something happened a couple of hours ago. We should be, uh, someone called me about it. We should detect it soon. No, no, no. They have kilometres per second. Um, but that's still relatively slow. Mm. And now the real question is, well, what about gravitational waves? I mean, how fast does gravity travel well it travels at the speed of light Mm -hmm. that's a lot faster Mm. so to put that in context if you had something that was about a thousand kilometers away which in terms of speed of light is like you know bang straight away um for a seismograph to detect that that's a couple of minutes so that's a significant difference in Mm. time so this is just a whole new way of determining whether or not you you can measure seismic activity with something other than the seismograph, which I think is really kind of cool. And the interesting thing at the moment, though, of course, is that as as sensitive as these detectors are, and they are ridiculously sensitive to being able to do this, the gravitational wave detection work that um, has been done recently, they still can't detect any earthquakes below a magnitude 8.5 at the moment because the sensitivity is just not there. So Mm. you're still talking about monstrous earthquakes um, to occur. And, um, yeah, so it's... It's technology in, in the mix, but it's something very different. I have to say I wasn't expecting to read something like this so soon, but, you know, the smart people at Caltech are, are working on this already, and hopefully they'll be able to get the sensitivity down well below needing a magnitude 8.5 earthquake to, mm. to do the work. But um, it's, yeah. It's, it's funny, cool, it never cool would have stuff. occurred to me that no. you have a change in gravity with an earthquake. I mean, if I'd thought about it, maybe I could have come up with it, but I well, never would have thought of it. And I think, it, again, it, it gives you a feel for just what a monstrous Mm. change in structure and energy and so Absolutely. forth an earthquake of that magnitude actually is and, mm. and we don't we don't necessarily think of it that way but when you think of the sheer mass and change in in position of parts of the earth when this occurs it's actually quite quite significant so mm. anyway it's um it's interesting i thought it was a, an interesting offshoot of the technology that uh, we yeah, hadn't cool. thought of who knows what else they use it for but um it's a pretty cool initial one so there you go three triple We are a radio show all about science, so if you've tuned in accidentally, stick with us. It could be fun. <laughs> um, or run for the run for the hills. Anyway, on the phone now, we are speaking, hopefully, to Professor Russell Boyce. He is the space director up at the University of New South Wales. Russell, can you hear us? I can hear you. Now, Russell, you guys have done something amazing over the last week. You've managed to launch the first miniature satellite into orbit from the United States, but for the University of New South Wales in Canberra. It's called the Buccaneer Cube Satellite. Tell us, first of all, um, I didn't know. Well, I didn't know we were launching satellites. Is this is this um, the first one for Australia or just for the university? Uh, no, it's not the first one for Australia, uh, and it's not the first one for the university at large either. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier, earlier this year, there were three <coughs> very small spacecraft launched in a program called QB50 by the Europeans, and UNSW in Sydney uh, had a small spacecraft as part right. of that. Right. Yep. But this is this is the first for UNSW Canberra in close collaboration with the Department of Defence. Okay. And tell us a bit about the, the Cube satellite itself. I mean, it's about the size of a shoebox, right? So what, what is it, um, you know, what's it meant to do? So its dimensions are 10 by 10 by 30 centimetres. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 as you say, it's literally about the size of a shoebox. weighs about four kilos. This particular spacecraft is the first of two. Um, it's a risk mitigation for the second one. What we're doing with this one is deploying what 
we believe will be the largest ever uh, deployable uh, lightweight flexible structure from a tiny spacecraft that's ever been done and that is a very very large high frequency radio antenna okay uh, the purpose of that on the second mission combined with a high frequency radio receiver uh, will be for defense scientists to uh, detect and measure signals from Australia's over-horizon radar network. Uh, that's that's something that defence need to do to be able to uh, upgrade and improve that system. In the meantime, since nobody's ever tried to deploy such a large structure from a CubeSat before, we're, we're doing that as a risk mitigation mission to make sure that it's stable and doesn't tie itself in knots. Mm. We believe it will be stable, but we need to confirm. So so tell us a bit more about the, the little craft itself. I mean, what does it have on it? I mean, is it able to reposition itself? Does it have um, you know those capabilities, or does it just sit up there and, and send a signal? What, what can it actually do? So it's got no propulsion on board, so it can't make any significant changes to its orbit, but it does have what's called an attitude control, uh, attitude determination and control system, mm -hmm. which is a series of sensors that can detect where the sun is, can detect the horizon, it knows what's up and what's down, and it's got a set of uh, reaction wheels, which can be spun up and down at uh, extremely fast, um, say 10,000 RPM, and they can add or take away angular momentum from the spacecraft and therefore change its attitude, yeah. uh, change its orientation. That uh, Most people would think that that just uh, has the effect of changing which way it's pointing, but in low Earth orbit, where there is actually some, uh, some atmosphere up there, not very much, but enough, um, and, and, and therefore the spacecraft experiences lift and drag, if you change the attitude of the spacecraft, then just the same as um, as if you were doing it with an aeroplane in the air, you can actually affect the orbit. You mm. can you can move around slightly in the orbit. You can uh, you can slow down. You can um, have quite significant um, effects actually. Mm. And with with that sort of uh, capability, uh, yes, we can move around a bit. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, we we did see some of that amazing footage actually when um, NASA was still running the space shuttle program of its use of aerobraking and so forth in order to lower its speed and reposition itself and I think some people might remember some of that, it, it was it was amazing to see those graphics and I, I can imagine you doing this with this, this essentially rectangular cube where you essentially you know, end on versus side on gives you a very almost surfing type scenario on the atmosphere Exactly uh, when you mentioned the space shuttle, where the altitude that where it was getting the greatest effect of that was at about uh, probably 60 kilometres altitude. Mm -hmm. This spacecraft is going to be um, at an average of about 600 kilometres altitude. Bit thinner. So it's, it's a little bit thinner. Uh, it's in fact it's extremely rarefied. Uh, there's a long way between um, atoms and ions. However, the, the spacecraft is travelling so fast, it's doing about 7.5 kilometres per second and lapping the Earth every 90 minutes, um, the effects accumulate, they integrate up, and you, you end up having uh, noticeable uh, perturbations to the orbit. Uh, Dr Ray here, I, uh, my question around attitude was, is that how you are able to aim the high-frequency radio antenna, or does it even need aim? Uh, little fuzzy on how uh, high frequency antennas work but does the attitude control allow you to aim the antenna or is that not that critical um i'm not the expert on the antenna um however i i, 
I do know from my engineers that uh, some of the antenna on board, and, and there's, there's a few of them, um, do need to be pointed in the right direction for some of the communications purposes. And uh, we will be changing the attitude to enable that. Hmm. Russell, tell us a bit about um, just the location you mentioned before, about 600 kilometres. How, how much stuff is up there and how important is it that we just avoid all of that? It seems to me as though whenever you see another map of the you know, 50 to 80,000 objects that is currently in orbit around our planet, it's, it looks like a crowded area. Is that, is that a concern for this particular craft? We're in a reasonably crowded orbit. It's a sun-synchronous orbit, which is the ideal orbit to be able to observe the Earth. So that's where most of the low-Earth orbit Earth observation satellites are. Uh, so it's kind of crowded. Nevertheless, there is a lot of empty space between each object. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the US Space Surveillance Network, which Australia uh, contributes to, uh, is, is currently actively tracking our spacecraft and all of the others uh, in that orbit and will receive um, will receive indications as to whether there's any likely collisions and more importantly the satellite operators who can control their spacecraft with propulsion and get out of the way uh, they'll be receiving any warnings yeah you think so you guys are a bit like the train train versus car scenario aren't you i mean like you, you can sort of tell the train to return as much as you want you're really not not able to get out of the way so fast as some of the others that have propulsion systems um russell just finally how, how long will this mission last with this particular satellite before you you move on well the actual spacecraft will probably deorbit in about uh five years plus mm -hmm. or minus something uh just due to the effects of drag it will slowly spiral into the atmosphere and burn up before it hits the ground we will make the most of it over the next uh probably about six months. Um, within that time, we'll have all of the information we need to start preparing the next in that series of two missions. Uh, and at the same time as that, we'll be uh, flying and operating uh, another spacecraft that we're launching next year for the Air Force. Cool. Look, it's it's great to see Australia so engaged in the space industry. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the last countries, or the last country, I think, in the OECD to get a, an actual uh, space organisation going, but you guys have been doing it for a little while. Keep up the good work, Russell, and um, we look forward to hearing uh, some of the results from, from this in the future. Thank you very much. That was Professor Russell Boyce, who is the space director at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. And uh, it is interesting. I, I, you know, you hear about this, and it doesn't feel as though Australia has a space program, but, you know, through our links with other organisations, we have a lot going on. So it's mm. kind of cool. We're going to take a break for some music, folks. We'll be back in uh, a moment. Actually, I'm not going to play some music. I think I'll play some important station announcements. That could be even more fun on a rainy day. What do you think? It's, uh, sure, fine. <laughs> These guys are getting Go excited. For it, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Settle down, you two. You, you're, getting, you're just too excited today. I can't handle Stop. it. Um, give you some time to go out and uh, you know buy your buy your wife something nice, right? <laughs> Get back in the good books. <laughs> well, uh, I'm dinner tonight. Uh... There you go. But from what you say, it's every night, so you know. Uh, you are listening to Three Triple R. In the studio with us now is Jake Martin. He's a PhD candidate in biological sciences at Monash University. Jake, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Look, it's great. I bumped into uh, one of the uh, team from uh, Science in Public during the week at an event, and they, again, the Fresh Science competition came up, and you were one of the people involved, and we got talking, and then we got talking about fish and drugs and all this stuff, and I thought, wow, that sounds cool, and that's your, that's your area. Yep. So 
Um, first of all, how much, because um, we're talking about how our drugs, our drug, people drugs, um, are affecting ecology and the fish that are out there. How much of our drugs do we sort of pump out, you know, through the drains or through the toilets? I mean, what, what's going on there? How's it getting out? So it enters the environment most commonly through usage and excretion, mm -hmm. whereby a patient will take a drug, mm -hmm. some kind of pharmaceutical, and they'll pee out some of that unchanged. It depends on the pharmaceutical that they're taking. But, for example, the antidepressant that I work on, about 15% is excreted unchanged, which okay. will then enter the wastewater treatment system, yep. um, eventually ending up at wastewater treatment plants. And from here, um, some of it will be pumped into the environment via effluent flow. Right. And, and your one, the, the drug, your one, but the drug you're working <laughs> on is Prozac, which is an extremely common antidepressant. Yes. It's been so, used for 30 years. Yeah. yeah, it's been around for a long time. Um, in fact, I think the uh, prescription in Australia is one of the highest. Uh, it's about 1.7 million people are prescribed antidepressants here in Australia. Every year? Every year, yeah. That, that, that number to me seemed extraordinarily high. I, it, it, I was just surprised that it was so high for antidepressants. In a way, I mean, it's, it's good to hear that all these people are actually getting treated for, for mental health issues, but it seemed like a very high number. Is, is it, how does that compare to other drugs that may be of concern? Um, in terms of prescriptions, honestly, I'm not sure. I mean, mm. things like ibuprofen are obviously yeah. a lot more mm. yeah, yeah, prevalent. Um, but in terms of being detected in the environment, it is one of the higher, high, most highly detected um, in terms of prescriptions and yeah. not over-the-counter medication. So let's talk about the detection in the environment part because this, this part sort of freaks me out. If, if I go down to Williamstown Beach and I grab a cup of water, am I going to find this stuff in the bay? Probably not. So okay. after these products make it through the wastewater treatment plant, a lot of it is removed. Okay. And when it enters the environment, it's at very low concentrations. Mm -hmm. So usually nanogram levels, which is like thousands and thousands, parts per trillion. Yep. So for it to get into your... So, yeah, if you're taking a glass of water from there, you'd be needing to drink a lot of water to get any <laughs> right. kind of... It's probably not a very no, effective treatment I was, strategy. <laughs> I was thinking more... Don't, could I, could I drink to me to try to treat depression. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I've uh, tried it, but usually the effects of the salt water hit me before yeah. the, the Prozac. Um, but if, if I did that, if I, let's say it was a bucket, um, would, I, would I be able to detect it down just in our bay? Is that, is that, are we seeing that? Well, most of the research is focused on freshwater systems at the moment okay. because that's yep. typically where we find most of these chemicals. But right. a study in the Sydney Harbour did find uh, pharmaceuticals along different points along estuaries yeah. across there. And those levels, for example, in this, the chemical I work on was 36 nanograms per litre, which is the same as what I used in my study. Wow, so, yeah. Now, this stuff gets out there and then it has a specific effect on, on fish and other marine creatures. What, what, what's going on there? What's happening? So the, uh, we started by looking at effects that are sort of um, what you would expect in humans. Hmm. So this, this drug is specifically designed to affect behaviour in humans um, and mediate stress response and anxiety behaviour. So that's what we looked at in fish. Because the serotonin system is highly conserved across vertebrates, um, it had the potential to affect fish in much the same way as it does in humans. Hmm. And um, that is exactly what we found. Yeah. Okay, so it, and it's interesting because Prozac, as I, I remember some aspects of these drugs over the years, but is one that you have to build up a certain level in your body before it becomes active in humans. Yes. Uh, is it the same in, in, in fish? Like they have to, well, I, I guess they're exposed to it all the time. Is that? Yeah, this is, is actually a very interesting question. So 
What a lot of research had done before uh, in the early days was using acute exposures right. to higher levels. And we know that phylloxetine, like you said, in patients takes up to a month to exhibit its right. f- effect. Um, so, And that's usually through mediating change in neurochemistry rather than just increasing extracellular serotonin. Mm. So in our study, that was one of the things that we've pointed out, that this was um, a... We used a 28-day exposure to mimic the type of the length of exposure needed in patients to exhibit okay. these effects as well. So you're a fish, you're on Prozac, you're hanging out there. <laughs> what, is, what does that mean? You're like, you just don't give a shit about anything that's trying to eat you? Is that, is that the... <laughs> well, so in, in our case, we said, we're using that sort of thinking, we're like, what about predators? Yeah. Right? Will you be as responsive to a predator now that you've been exposed to this contaminant? And that is um, exactly what we looked at. So we wanted to see whether phylloxine affected anti predator behaviour in our fish, and it did. Wow, okay. And, and what about the... Oh, hang on, these guys are... Jo- go, Jen. But what, so what about the predator then? I know you yeah. might not have looked at that yet, but does that mean the predator is more, you know, predatory, or does that mean the predator isn't worried about the bigger predators? Or, like, presumably this is a big ripple effect, you know? I kind of have this image of a penguin <laughs> yeah. hanging off the side of a whale. <laughs> I can take him. I can take him. Is that... <laughs> what do you think? So, yeah, a very interesting question. Look, it's one that I get all the time. Um, at this stage, so we started by looking at the simplest possible yeah. scenario we wanted to see how it affected one species but like like you said there's going to be species interactions mm. and there's been a bit of research now saying that foraging behavior is affected and even uh, the ability of predators to catch prey is affected so like you said it's um it's complicated and we really the only way to figure it out is more research mm. and is anyone looking at sorry i just jumped in there guys is anyone no, looking right. at any other i know you're working in working in freshwater systems so not marine systems but what about frogs you know other animals that are mm. dependent on fresh water has anyone looked at them to my knowledge there's not as much on frogs which like you said is very surprising given they're particularly sensitive mm, species absolutely. um but yeah to my knowledge there's not a lot of work looking at pharmaceutical impacts on frogs and it's something that our lab is particularly interested in doing mm. so um water treatment is an area that is actually a technology that's advancing quite a lot mm. particularly in the last 10 years that you see toilet to tap systems in brisbane uh university of melbourne's making a toilet to tap system for antarctica and, and so water treatment does now have the capacity to filter out, remove, or oxidize these pharmaceuticals as well. So, the, but there's a trade-off in cost and regulation as to what purity level you can specify. So looking at your research now where you see exposure over time, particular levels, and accumulation, is do you have any feel or, or see any potential in the future for your work to perhaps feed back to, to say, to water treatment plants, what's the level that you really need to be filtering out versus the one you're operating at now? Uh, Or is this more of an accumulation in the environment? Like, do you have the potential to impact that? Well, we would would hope that that's what our research does eventually. Like, I see our research now as pointing out pharmaceuticals of particular concern. So pharmaceuticals that at really low levels can affect our wildlife. And I hope that our research now coming out has sort of highlighted the potential of phylloxetine to do that. And from here, I think we just need to use, we need to look at what's most commonly detected now and whether they have the potential to affect behaviour. Because without you know, anybody highlighting these, why would we spend more money to remove them? Mm. Oh, look, it's great. I think the other, the other thing, of course, is that these are drugs that were tested specifically to be used on humans and a mouse and a fish, you know, 
I don't know if you've looked, but they're not that similar. So <laughs> knowing knowing what some of the effects are here, really, you know, it's it's really an open book as to what will be the effect on a specific. Uh, species and there's so many different species we see so jake it's really interesting work and um it's good to hear this is going on and i hope uh hope we can nail down you know as races an economically viable way to filter some of this stuff out and then put less of it into the environment but keep up the good work good luck with your phd how long have you got until you submit I've got uh, about a year and a bit, year and, oh. year and a few months. Miles, so. miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take it easy. Go get a coffee. You got plenty. Uh, Jake, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us, and good luck with the work. Thank you very much for having me. Jake Martin's a PhD candidate in biological sciences at Monash University. Three, triple. Yeah, you're listening to 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Helen Green. She's a geochemist from the University of Melbourne. Helen, welcome to Einstein A Go Go. Hi, thanks for having me. Look, it's um, a, a geochemist, first of all. What is that? I mean, <laughs> we've got a chemical engineer sitting right next to you. What does a geochemist do? Um, I guess geochemists do all sorts of different things, um, but my specific role is based on applying uh, geochemical techniques to uh, dating Australia's Aboriginal rock art. Hmm. So um, the specific role that I'm involved in is uranium series dating of, of the rock art. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, a quite a specific field of, of geochemistry. Mm. Yeah. Now, now you and I were chatting a bit in the green room before and I was saying how most people will have heard of carbon dating, mm. but very few people except those who listened to Breakfasters about four and a half years ago <laughs> when I did a story about it, have heard of uranium dating. Sure. So do you just compare and contrast the two and mm. why, why the two are used? Yeah, okay, so um, in, in terms of dating the rock art, we, probably the first thing to say is that we can't directly date the rock art, so mm -hmm. we can't date the paint itself. Okay. So what we're doing is applying lots of different dating techniques to materials associated with the rock art. So radiocarbon dating is based on uh, dating materials that contain organic stuff hmm. so and that's because all living things contain a uh, radioactive isotope of carbon carbon 14 and so just to give you a very brief background carbon 14 um, is acquired by living th things through the atmosphere so plants through photosynthesis and then animals will eat the plants but as soon as that material or that animal or plant dies radiocarbon starts to decay mm -hmm. so we measure the amount that's left and that tells us when that thing died okay. so uh, the application to rock art would be that we are trying to radiocarbon date um, mud wasp nests. So there's mud wasps in the Kimberley that build nests over the art. And so if we can date how old the nest is, if, it, if there's art underneath it or if there's art on top of it, provides us a bracketing age. Right, yeah. Um, and so we know now from the work that one of our PhD students, Damien Finch, is doing that these nests can last over 20,000 years and possibly longer. So they're a really <sighs> useful tool. Mm. Um, radiocarbon dating has a limit of 50,000 years. Okay. Yep. So uranium series dating is another method that we're applying. Because we can't directly date the art, we're using lots of different techniques to kind of build up a picture. And so uranium series dating is a, is a similar radioactive decay type um, dating system. Um, and in terms of the rock art, we're applying this to mineral accretions. So the Kimberley is very dry for half the year and wet for the other half of the year. So during the wet season, rain flows into the shelters where we have the art. These are, the art isn't in caves, it's in sort of open shelters. Mm. So the water's running over the panels. This then deposits little minerals as it dries out, and these build up over time to form what looks like a little bit of rock. 
that contains very, very small amounts of uranium. And so in the same way that radiocarbon decays, uranium decays to thorium over time. So we take little pieces of those mineral accretions and we measure how much uranium is left, how much thorium is accumulated, and that tells us when that accretion formed. Mm. And again, if it's overlying the art, we know that the art has to be older, and if it's underlying the art, and the uranium um, cycle is much longer than That's carbon. Right. So, so how how far out can you go with uranium? Six hundred thousand years. Wow. So, okay. whereas radiocarbon's yeah. a bit limited by yep. its, its age span, uranium series isn't in terms of what we're trying to do. Um, so, combining the two things means that we cover all bases really. And is it true that as you get to the extent of the range, like when you with carbon, when you get to that fifty, that it gets a bit flaky towards? Yeah. It. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. I, I was just curious to to what accuracy? So. Mm-hmm. Other than the end of fifty thousand years, are you within five hundred years, ten thousand years, and or five hundred years? And then for the longer one, for uranium, are you more or less accurate compared to carbon before you get to the end? Um, well, our biggest problem at the moment is that these dating techniques that we're applying to the rock art haven't really been applied in this way before. So, radiocarbon dating and uranium series dating haven't been applied to these materials. We're also using materials which are much smaller than have been. So we're, we're basically pushing the limits of these techniques. And so your question of the reliability of the age or the accuracy of the age is our biggest um, challenge at the moment. So the age errors on the edges that we're getting are quite large and our next challenge is to try and bring those errors down. Um, the mm. other problem with radiocarbon dating is of course that you're assuming that the material that you're dating. So if I give you a little bit of a background on how it works with the wasp nests, as a nest is built, um, the wasp fills it with little caterpillars. So we've actually been up there and filmed these things doing this in the wet season. It's actually quite amazing. They'll fly off, wrestle a caterpillar back into the nest, <laughs> and that's for the baby wasp to eat once it hatches. Right. And, of course, all these things contain carbon. So what you're hoping that you're dating when you're doing radiocarbon dating is that material, is the dead bits of caterpillar, because we know they were put in there when the nest was built. What you're hoping you're not dating is some old charcoal that's been blown into the nest mm. that's much older. Mm. And that gives you the, the errors. So that's our big, rather than the, the accuracy of the, of the technique, our biggest problem at the moment is sort of the errors that are associated with things right. like that. I've got about 10,000 questions, so let's go. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> f- first of all, I mean, one of the things I find uh, amazing here is uh, when you describe the rock art's mm. location and the fact mm-hmm. that there is the water flowing over mm. it and so forth, I mean, how the hell is this stuff still there, that's first right. of all? And, and second... When you talk about the samples, how do you how do you get these samples? Because I mean, I remember years ago I was doing some work with the Ian Potter Foundation, uh, mm. Ian Potter Gallery, and they said to me it was it was looking at paintings, okay. and they said you can you can run run your finger along the bottom edge of the frame and you'll find some bits that have fallen off and that's what you're going to use. Yeah, <laughs> Don't okay. touch the painting. And I was sure. like, what? Yeah. yeah. So how yeah. do you? I mean, how do they survive first of all, and then mm-hmm. and then how do you sample them? Sure. Um, the question of how they survive, we, we haven't answered that yet. And, and sometimes you can go up to a panel of rock art in the Kimberley and you would swear it was done yesterday. It's so mm. immaculate mm. and it's so well preserved that it, it is quite incredible that they've been there for what we know now to be over 10,000 years. Yeah possibly older than that um, and so how that's happening we're not quite sure and it's something that we're working on um, and the preservation you know the mineral accretions that we're trying to date are probably their biggest um, the thing that's affecting them the most because quite often they'll cover over the paintings and so understanding how they're impacting the preservation of the paintings and how we might come up with strategies to um, to sort of Uh, help with this is something that we're working on in our new project. In terms of getting the samples, um, yeah, it's a really big job. So we do a field season 
we've done field seasons in the in the wet, but we usually do our biggest field season during the dry, um, and so that's in sort of June and July of the year. And we go up and we there's a group of scientists and archaeologists and traditional owners who all work together, and we do remote camping for three or four weeks. We fly around to art sites in the helicopter and we collect mineral accretions and wasp nests and, and other materials associated helicopter? with Helicopter? Sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> How many researchers in this country get to use helicopters? I'm just wondering, it's yeah, like it's three? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, you qu- we take great care to take the smallest sample that we can, mm. and that's why we're pushing these techniques to the limit, because we do take very, very tiny samples. The sample size is sort of the size of your fingernail, right. maximum. Um, and also every sample that we take is with permission from a traditional owner. There's always a traditional owner on site. We always ask before we take a sample mm. and they always approve or, or, you know, say no if they don't want the sample to be taken. In, in, in terms of, you know, when we think of ancient artworks and mm. so forth and, you know, whether it's Egyptian or whatever else, mm. usually they're in these humidity controlled, beautiful environments. <laughs> uh, you know, these things are threatened by a variety of factors, you know, whether it's geological disturbances, sure. you know, earthquakes and so forth, which happen in Australia, of course, yep. um, or whether it's, you know, wasps and, and their caterpillars or, yep. or anything else. I mean, what what is happening there in terms of conservation of these sites? Because there aren't, if you look around the world, there mm. aren't many things that humans have done that are in excess of 10,000 years old that mm-hmm. we have um, sitting around in museums. Mm. And I think that's one of the most remarkable things about Kimberley Rock Art that there is, I mean there's tens of thousands of sites we're not mm. just talking, right. when, we, when we talk about sites in France where, where there's quite famous rock art that people would be quite familiar with we're talking about you know one or two caves that are very well yep. preserved within a sheltered environment, we're talking about tens of thousands of sites across a massive area oh. and they are you know remarkably well preserved um, how we go about conserving them for the future it is something that we'll have to work on and we're actually partners with um, Ballangara Aboriginal Corporation and also the Department of Parks and Wildlife so one of the focuses of our new project is going to be more on the geomicrobiology of these sites so working out how the pigment is is um is is preserved like you say and then feeding that back to the Aboriginal corporations and the state government bodies to talk about how we might um, aid their strategies for conservation in their healthy country plans and, and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. Given that there's presumably a, a fairly large age range for some of these different sites, because mm. we know that there's been you know such an incredibly long history of Aboriginal people here, sure. is somebody doing the the comparative work of looking at how art styles have changed over that time? Is someone kind of trying to tell yes. those stories well, too? Yeah, I mean that's quite a, f- a focus of our project. We know from the work of of previous researchers over the past few decades that there is a sequence of art styles. So quite often you'll go up to a panel and you'll see the really distinctive four or five different styles and you can see that they're positioned on top of each other mm. and people have done a lot of work before we've we've come here to um, figure out what that sequence is and so that doesn't tell us how old it is but it no. does tell us that this one was first and this one was second and so one of the aims of our project is to put brackets on those different art styles and they do change quite dramatically mm, yeah, I've seen the, the Wanjanas versus the Guyons are, are quite yeah. different um, and then we can start talking once we have ages then we can start talking about why they might have changed does mm. that relate to a climate change Do, you know it, uh, why are these why is this style sequence seen in the Kimberley so yeah that's mm. that's a really big focus mm. it's fascinating because it can tell us so much about what our environment you know that's used right. to look like yeah one of the most striking pieces of, our, of um, Aboriginal work I remember I saw which is very famous and everyone visits it is you know seeing um, a picture of a thylacine mm. 
you right, know, yeah. way up in Northern Australia, you think, wow, what, what else was there then? They're just wandering around. Yeah, what yeah. else was there then that's not there now that yeah. we don't know about? Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, Helen, one of the things I've found fascinating over the last the probably decade is how more and more very old Aboriginal sites have been found, not, not in terms of art, but just in general sort of you know, proof that they were here a long, long time mm. ago. And, and you know, I think the number's out towards 50,000 years or something. Like, it's quite protracted. Mm. Do we know why the rock art that's, you know, visible mm-hmm. only goes out to t- 10-ish thousand years and why there is, you know, why you're not seeing things mm. that are sort of out to 30,000, 40,000 years? Has it been, mm. is it that it didn't survive Mm. these sort of processes you're talking about or it wasn't done is there any any clues as to what's going um, on there? i think it's possible that it will go out that far we just don't have that data yet okay so i only said ten thousand years because that's the kind of data that we've we've got firm um mm. dates on at the moment but we have got evidence that it will go older than that but because these dating techniques are uh like I say, we're pushing them to their limits and, and it's hard work. You know, people have tried to date the rock art in the Kimberley for a long time um, and, and it's hard. It's not the easiest thing to do. Again, um, in France, I feel like we're always quite jealous of other rock art researchers because <laughs> we're always sort of saying, oh, they've got it so much easier. Yeah, than but us. they've got like two. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. And in limestone environments yeah. too, it's much easier to date stuff in limestone environments than it is in sandstone environments like the Kimberley. And so because of that, we are having to to do lots of repeats of the ages to make because we want to make sure that the dates that we get are mm. really reliable. We yeah. don't want to go running off with a date and then find out later that actually it wasn't true because people have done that before. Mm. Um, and so... Basically, what I'm saying to you is, yeah, hopefully it will end up that it that it shows a record that goes back much further than 10,000 years. We're just we're still working on that. Because that that brings in exactly what Jenny was just talking about with regards to information about climate and, and species yes. and so forth. And if if all of a sudden you have a map of that, mm-hmm. you know, as you say, with tens of thousands mm-hmm. of these these particular pieces of art that lasts over 30 to 50,000 years. Sorry, but suck it, rest of the world. Yeah, yeah right. none of you, like nowhere in the world, is there anything even vague comparable mm-hmm. to that. I mean, that, that must be pretty exciting that you guys yeah. could kind of bring that out. That'd oh, be, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's nature paper stuff. Oh, you know, yeah. Well, you know, we I mean, yeah so. Maybe. I mean, I'm sure nature's good enough. You might just <laughs> write it up in a, a separate <laughs> publication. It sounds, it sounds amazing, really amazing. Yeah, it is. It's a really amazing project to work on. And, um, you know, we've got so many different people from different backgrounds who are all, all working together. So we have got a group of people who are doing climate stuff, not on our project, but a separate project um, funded by the Kimberley Foundation. And they're working on climate records that eventually will hopefully match to our um, mm. dates and you know the archaeologists are working on on digs and, and and the history that's associated with that so it's a really exciting time for for rock art research sounds like research at its best bringing so, together yeah. all these yeah. different disciplines yeah. working directly with the traditional owners you know yep. it just sounds this is this is very exciting mm. yeah look yeah. It, it is just awesome work you have to absolutely promise to come back and tell us <laughs> uh, you know if, when you do get some of these dates coming yes. out and there's the confidence uh, that you need in them to that's be right. other publisher it would be great to hear about that oh, because i think you. just hearing that story and that that evolution of that story over such mm. a protracted period i mean it just you know people talk about egypt like it's the the, the the best best thing or the yeah. Mayans and so forth but but this goes literally you know 20 30,000 years beyond yeah. that which is yeah. as I say suck at Europe we're going, <laughs> we're going to like you. Yeah. it's really really fascinating stuff yeah, so sure yeah. yeah oh well, Helen thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today we're, we're out of time me. but um as I said, we'd love to get you back to talk about this as yeah, the results come out. So thanks. So you much. are allowed to publish it in Nature First. Okay. We, we won't, you know, well, we, yeah, we won't we'll, expect first yeah. dibs. Well, but. you know, we, we same day. 
Yeah, we'll go same day. Um, Helen Green's a geochemist at the University of Melbourne doing some amazing work there on, on rock art. We've only got a minute to go, and then we're going to have to hand over to the team from yeah. Edith. You got a big day planned, Jen? Yeah, I do, actually. Yeah, we're, we're having our family Christmas present heading down to the city to see Aladdin this afternoon. Oh, the, uh, we, we, just saw the that, we just saw that Friday night. Was yeah. it awesome? Oh, it really was. The genie yeah, was excited. a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's coming back. I'm yeah. See, that's it's been a while since I remember seeing it when, when it was twenty years ago. Now, was at the movie with Robin Williams. Yeah, the movie yeah, was yeah. ages ago. So this a long is time ago. Stage yeah, stage show. show. So it's um, that's I'm good excited. That it's yeah, it should be fun. Well, folks, we're going to give you over to eat it. Uh, I think they're over in there. They're probably a bit disappointed because Barbecue Day had to be postponed. I think it's going to happen sometime in the new year when the weather is a little bit more um, consistent with not ruining the ground down there series. Um, so snuggle up. They'll give you the normal amazing show. Big thank you to Liv. She's been doing our Twitter feed. She's I banished her from being too close to us because computer's making a weird whirring sound. Um, <laughs> but we're all good. Dr. Jen, thanks so much. Thanks, Shane. Dr. Ray. Dr. Shane, it was fun. And a big uh, hello out there to all the team from the Bureau of Meteorology who've been copping a bit of shit this weekend because apparently uh, someone in some suburb didn't get exactly 55 millimetres of rain. It's sort of like, well, frankly, piss off. Yeah. <laughs> they do a very good job and they keep us safe with their reports. So congratulations to them. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. Remember, science is everywhere. And we will chat to you again next week. We have, I think, three weeks to go. That's counting the next 12 seconds. Not that Dr. Shane's counting. Well, you know, hold their time. But uh, no, I miss the show when it's off. Anyway, see you next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.